You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar of Fianna Gael are to meet next week for exploratory talks on forming a new government after the 33rd Doyle met for the first time yesterday but failed to elect a Taoiseach. TDs did conclude one item of business, the election of a Ceann Corla, but neither Mary Lou Macdonald, Micheál Martin, Leo Varadkar nor Eamon Ryan could muster a majority to lead the next government. So the brand new Doyle was adjourned for two weeks to allow the party's focus on forming a government. Overall, it was a day of mixed emotions, excitement for the 48 new TDs taking their seats for the first time, but animosity on display inside the Doyle chamber. Following events for us was Sandra Hurley. An impromptu session outside Leinster House with Danny Healy Ray on the accordion. Inside, Count Corla Sean O'Farriel was resoundingly re-elected, telling a story about his gown. It had been worn by Sean Barrett, so it was a little bit uh, on the long side for me. And in the aftermath of the counting of the votes, it miraculously got shortened. So I think we can truly say about the Count Corla's gown, which, by the way, was the subject of a Freedom of Information request during the course of the year. Somebody wanted to know what it had cost and how much its dry cleaning cost. (laughs) And we discovered it was here so long that nobody knew what it had cost, and it had never been dry cleaned. Next, the nominations for Taoiseach, which initially unfolded predictably along party lines. It is a great honour for me. Honour more, Dumsa. Vehenshohanyu, con anam Leo Vradkar, a karari Marial Ofegan Taoiseach. On behalf of the Fianna Fáil party, I am proud beyond measure to nominate Deputy Micheál Martin for the office of Taoiseach. Sinn Féin has a mandate to put together a government for change and we want to work with others to bring such a government about. Nobody in this Dáil can lead that government for change other than Chapter Mary Lou Macdonald. I can't call a bawatlam taku lahan makan Eamon Ryan marhishach on kaid Taoiseach glass. However, while eight left-wing and independent TDs also backed Mary Lou Macdonald, that support was conditional, according to some, including Rise TD Paul Murphy. I'd say to Sinn Féin that you should be under no misunderstanding about the nature of my vote. Um, I think Deputy Macdonald will have the most votes for Taoiseach today because of my vote and the votes of other left-wing TDs. These are not votes to be used to strengthen your hand for negotiations for, with Fianna Fáil. The Social Democrats stayed above the fray, while Labour also abstained. We will advance our own policies, anchored in the values that we've put before the people and in the manifesto we we, we sought to have endorsed. And we will support policies from any quarter that are in harmony with that and support any proposals that come before this stall that are in harmony with that objective. The Social Democrats will not be supporting any candidate because we believe it is meaningless for us to do so in the absence of of a negotiated and agreed programme for government. Mary Lou Macdonald got the most votes for Taoiseach but well short of a majority. And as expected, Leo Vranker resigned. I deeply regret that we were not returned as the largest party on this occasion, albeit by a margin of two seats. But I respect the verdict of the people in the general election and that of the House today. And after tendering my resignation to the President in accordance with the relevant article of the Constitution, I will ensure that the government continues its work in the interests of the people and the country 
until we have a new government endorsed by this House. Thank you. Micheál Martin took aim at Sinn Féin. We do not believe that Sinn Féin operates to the same democratic standards held by every other party in this House. Deputy Macdonald has confirmed that she does not accept any of our criticism, as to her entitlement, of her party's practices and standards. We simply do not agree. And this is not simply about the past. The past is important, and Sinn Féin's efforts to legitimise a murderous sectarian campaign keeps alive a narrative which is used by dissidents to legitimise their campaigns today. But this is more fundamentally about today. This elicited an angry response from Mary Lou Macdonald. Change also means that the old order must pass. And you see, that's really what the problem is here. Because, of course, government formation is about numbers we can add. Of course, government formation is about policy coherence. No one's arguing to the contrary. But government formation is also about power and who wields it. And the reality is that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have run the show for almost a century and by Christ they're not minded to let go. That's really what all of this is about. Mary Lou MacDonald of Sinn Féin ending that report from Sandra Hurley. We're joined here in the studio by Fionn Sheehan, Ireland editor of the Irish Independent. Very good morning to you, Fionn. Good morning, Thanks Brian. for coming in to talk to us. Um, first of all, perhaps uh, we might just have a word or two about this news this morning of exploratory talks between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael next week. What are we to make of that? So, Leo Varadkar has, has made it clear that yes, Fine Gael are ready to go into to opposition, but as a last resort, if all other options are, are played out, that they are open to engaging in, in talks uh, with others, mainly Fianna Fáil there in, in that regard. So he, Leo Varadkar hasn't appointed any negotiating team, but he's willing to start teasing out uh, at this point in time what, what might be involved there. But I think he's also been quite clear he wants to see the other efforts played out because there's a narrative here that has to go back to the voters that they're not... Fine Gael aren't, uh, have got the message from the general election that they have been rejected, uh, that they don't particularly have a mandate to lead a, a, new, a new governor, therefore heading to opposition. But at the same time, if no other option is available for the formation of a government uh, that, they, that they will serve. Uh, what about the level of resistance within Finnegal, particularly within the parliamentary party, to going back into government? I mean, reports that Richard Bruton, an influential figure, was saying, yeah. no, the party should be in opposition for this. Yeah, and, and certainly in the wake of the, the general election on County and over the course of the, the following week, there was a view that they were very much going back to, to square one. So almost turning the clock back to 2002, having to, to rebuild uh, the party again and decide what where they are positioning themselves on, on, on the political spectrum. And they seem to be quite comfortable with, with, with that idea. You saw it over the course of, of the election campaign. Uh, more centre-right party, more less of a catch-all party, more in favour of, of tax-cutting, um, fiscal rectitude, pro, pro-European. So that was... That was that that's a debate okay. going on within that's the party. That's a debate going on, and they seem to want time and space to, to complete to all that. Also, very little opposition towards Leo Varadkar continuing on as, mm-hmm. as leader uh, in, in that regard. So there will be some... Uh, reluctance to, to be going back into government uh, again after the hiding that they got in this uh, general election and also a worry about what this would mean for the next time that they go to the electorate. What about these very sharp exchanges between Micheál Martin and Mary Lou Macdonald yesterday and the very strong attack by uh, Micheál Martin on Sinn Féin? He really seemed to be doubling down on his uh, stated position which is that there'll be no question of, of him as leader of Fianna Fáil having any truck with Sinn Féin in terms of government formation. 
Yeah, it, they rolled out the kids for the nomination of Taoiseach yesterday, but it was very much the grown-ups who were in charge last night. There were you know, fairly you know, vicious, venomous, vituperative exchanges between Michal Martin and uh, Mary Lou MacDonald. He, he set out quite clearly, if anybody was in any doubt during the general election about Michal Martin's intentions or Sinn Féin, you wouldn't be last night. So that, that option of Fianna Fáil going in with Sinn Féin after watching those exchanges last night, it was very much off the table. So you go back and look at where Sinn Féin are at now, they are very much in a position where yes, they can continue on trying to f- to formulate this left-led uh, minority government, which needs an awful lot of things to go their way. They need uh, the Green Party and the Social Democrats to get on board. You then need some sort of uh, coherent agreement with with. The, the, the two larger parties and perhaps uh, Labour to allow them to, to take office. So it, it's, it's a bit of a long shot. Mm-hmm. The second option then of going in with Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin, that seems to be off the table now and that's why you're jumping ahead really looking at Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael being the only realistic uh, option at this point. In time. And of course crucial to that is the participation of, of others. Uh, mm. Presumably the Greens are the most obvious in terms yeah. of a third uh, leg if you like to the, to the stool and the Greens are planning next week to meet uh, other parties including Fianna Gael. Yeah, well, may I Martin also had, had the support of four independents last night uh, who didn't put any, any conditions on their support. So you add Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and, and four independents and you, and you hit 76. So you're, you're nearly there. The, the focus now and the pressure will very much lie upon the Green Party and the Social Democrats. Uh, it won't be credible for Eamon Ryan to nominate himself again in, in two weeks' time when, when the, the doll sits. And the Social Democrats have said they're available to do business with somebody but they want to see an agreed uh, programme for government. The the offer that will be on the table to them effectively from, from Sinn Féin will be for the Green Party to be in charge of the climate change agenda and that portfolio and for the, for the Social Democrats to be in charge of, of health uh, uh, and the implementation of the Slaughter Gear Plan. That's a, a big opportunity for them. They also don't want to run in, fall into the trap of being accused of being in left-wing parties who are opposed to change and putting Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael back into power. Very good. Fiona Sheen at the Irish Independent. Thank you very much indeed for that. Well, it's a very proud day for the families of the 48 first-time TDs who will take their seats in the Dáil Chamber later this morning. 17 of the 48 are from Sinn Féin, 9 are from the Green Party, 8 are Fianna Fáil TDs, 5 are Fine Gael, 4 are the Social Democrats, 4 first-time independents are in the new Dáil and 1 is Labour. That's Duncan Smith. Well, we're joined here in Boswell's Hotel this morning by three first-time TDs, independent TD for Kildare South, Dr Cahal Berry, Sinn Féin TD for Russell. Common Galway, Claire Curran, and Green Party TD for Dublin South West, Francis Duffy. And Cahill is joined by his wife, Dr. Orla Power, and Francis is joined by his Green Party TD wife, Catherine Martin. You're all very, very welcome, and congratulations to you all um, on this day. It's a big day. Um, Claire, how are you feeling? Um, slightly nervous, but excited. Uh, it's a big day. It's a big day for my family and for my supporters. So it's exciting. It's slightly daunting, but you know we've huge challenges ahead, and I'm excited. I'm looking forward to getting in there and getting started. Time to get the sleeves rolled up, and we've a lot to do. Get the job done, Cahal. What about you? How are you feeling today? Uh, f- fantastic. Yeah, it's a it's a great privilege to be here, and um, also a huge responsibility as well. There's a a lot of people in the constituency relying on me, so my intent is to to not leave them down. Francis, what about you? Yeah, very excited. Um, it's it's a very different makeup going forward into into this stall. So it's it's really exciting. It's really exciting to be here to see you know what way it's going to go forward. 
Catherine, you're of course a you're a TD. You, you've been re-elected, so you're new, you're not new to this anymore. But what changes for you both now with regard to family life? Um, well, first of all, I'll say I'm new, but the the, the honour and privilege never it never changes. No, you know, it's every true. day I, I walk out of Leinster House, I still look at it and go, what an honour to to be in in, in the doll. Um, I I guess there's a little bit of a, a balancing act. You know, we've three three children: Turlock, Tig, and Stella, age 12, 11, and and nine. Um, so you know, they're the reason we joined the Green Party and we got active in politics. So um, they, they, you know, it's, it's looking after them too. You know, there's yeah. no point getting involved in politics. Look after your your for your children and then. You know, you don't. You have to prioritise your children too. So it's that. It's it's little things like I was. I was only saying the other day we need to synchronise our, our office calendars to make sure I'm not committing to something on a night that Francis is, has committed to. Um, there will be a lot of leaning on family and friends for babysitting, maybe for the late night votes. But I'm glad that we have a, the Thursday weekly votes um, are, are on in the afternoon. So that's that's more family friendly. Um, and Francis, have you thought about you know living together and working together? Is it going to be fairly intense, or do you expect to see? An awful lot of each other during the day. Um, well, I think so far in the last week it's been great because we actually have gone for walks and talked about what's going on that day, and yeah. I, f- I found that really interesting because we are working together. I suppose when we get in into the office, I suppose uh, we do separate and come back during the day. But I found, I suppose, in the morning talking about what's going to happen and in the evening kind of debriefing. It's it's been quite interesting yeah. and and. Very helpful, I'd say. There, there were times during the, the campaign where I, I did turn to France and go, gosh, it's great having someone who's running for election too because you get it, you know. Yeah, exactly. um, and I'm really hoping that the, the family that campaigns together stays together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new slogan, all right. Um, Orla, will you talk to us about what, it, what the campaign was like and your, your kind of expectations of what's to come? To be honest with you, I have no expectations whatsoever. This has just been a whirlwind of a few weeks. We've, we haven't really seen a whole lot of uh, Cahill in the last couple of weeks. He's been working so hard. He's been coming home really late and leaving really early. Um, and we've really had to rely on our, our families really to, to, to help out with the kids. My dad in particular has been absolutely fantastic. Um, but overall, I suppose it's just so exciting to be here. Um, and as Cahill said, such a privilege. Um, I just can't believe it's actually happened. Did you think he'd be elected when he he decided to run. Mm-hmm. Did you think we'd be sitting here in Boswell's today getting ready for day one in the You know, dog? I had a really, I, I, I just had a gut feeling that he would put, he'd, be, he'd pull this off. Anything he's ever put his mind to in the past, somehow he has just managed to do it. And I don't know how he's done it. He's has, he has a wonderful campaigning team is how he's done it mm-hmm. in his constituency. It's been incredible, incredible um, support for him. Um, but I, I thought he would. Yeah, yeah. He thought me, he, he, he was telling me the whole time that I was crazy, that <laughs> He had no hope that it'd be over in a week or two. Um, but no, I knew he would. Did you think you'd win, Carl? I think initially probably no. But uh, I think maybe on day two of the campaign, we, we kind of realised that there was something stirring in, in the constituency. And we had massive support. Uh, the the reaction we were getting on the doorsteps was phenomenal. People were just, this, this phrase that we were a breath of fresh air just kept coming back to us. So I suppose on day two of the campaign, we started to believe and uh, here we are today. You're, to remind our audience, you've been on Morning Ireland a couple of times and indeed other programmes. You came to prominence last year. You were a former, very senior member of the Army Rangers and you spoke out about conditions for the Defence Forces. Is that really what drove you to stand then? Absolutely, that would be the main reason. I mean, the, the story of, of 
of the defence forces. It's a it's a tale of of exploitation and, in, and injustice, really. Um, the one group of people in the country that are not allowed strike are being completely taken advantage of by their employer, uh, which is the Department of Defence. So it's very good to be here. Um, I think the reason I have been elected is it's because to, to be a voice for the voiceless, really. Um, so the Defence Forces need a voice, and now they have one. And uh, one person in the doll is more effective than, than 5,000 people on the street. Claire, what inspired you to join politics because I think you're you're certainly Sinn Féin's youngest TD, am I right? Mm-hmm. And you're you're one of only three TDs who are still in their twenties. Yeah, well, I suppose my first um, start into politics was 2011 when we lost our accident and emergency unit at Roscommon Hospital. It was a huge campaign. I was in my late teens, but I was heavily involved in it, and I think it was really the the injustice of losing that vital service um, after commitments were given beforehand. And I mean, the health service across Galway, Roscommon, is a huge issue. It's something I'm really passionate about, and it's a basic service that people need and should be entitled to, you know, access. Yeah. And Francis, why did you get involved? Well, I think my father introduced me to politics in 1982 and um, and, and with that, the, the, the desire to help people. So I've always been interested in helping people and then <clears throat> I suppose being an architect um, and a lecturer looking at how you can uh, reconstruct um, in, in a sustainable way. So I, I, it, that's, you know, and I suppose doing it a level as a lecturer is one level, but to get it into policy is something mm. else. And um, I did a master's recently in looking at policy and procurement and how do you actually, you know, make things actually happen. And the place to do it is actually in the doll. Well, I'm curious about that, your expectation of what you can achieve, perhaps more so as an independent, but but you as a as one of 12 TDs in the Green Party, are you expecting to be in the next government? Um, well, I'm not really looking at that, I suppose. I'm looking at the at the moment there's discussions going on between all the parties and I think we've shown an initiative to <clears throat> get the parties talking and, and find out where there's commonalities in policy and informing you know potentially a, pr- a program for government um, on that or off that um, that looks at how we deal with the housing crisis looks at the, the s- sustainability issues um, that we're facing uh, and transport you know and so Work I've done both as a lecturer and I suppose as a county councillor and looking at the, the transport problems, chronic transport problems we have and, you know, and how to kind of alleviate that. Um, I, and I believe from working on the council and seeing how that council works and bureaucracy works, you can make change or affect change. So um, whether we're in or out of government, I do believe you can still affect change. I know Catherine did it in the last all in opposition. She, she uh, the premature babies motion got passed. Yeah. So you can do it on both sides. Cahill, um, your vote is up for grabs today for uh, Taoiseach. Have you decided who to vote for? Um, I haven't for, for Taoiseach. Have no, for Ciarán Cáil I have. Okay. Uh, two very good candidates there. And uh, I'll be voting for both candidates in, in order of, of preference. Uh, it's a secret ballot, so I'm just going to respect that process. Okay. And for Taoiseach, how will you decide? So basically there's about 10 hours left before we vote for Taoiseach and a lot can happen in Leinster House in 10 hours time. Um, obviously uh, all the candidates, I'd be very keen to see what their what their plans for the Defence Forces are in their first 100 days in office basically. So I, I, would, like to, I would need to see a fully costed and fully timelined plan in relation to how are they going to rectify the crisis in the Defence Forces at the moment. I think it was a couple of days after the election, it was during the count coverage, Fergal Purcell, who's a former um, government press office, press advisor to Enda Kenny, he was suggesting that perhaps if Sinn Féin did form part of the next government, that perhaps Mary Lou Macdonald could or should appoint you to the defence ministry. Would you serve in a Sinn Féin government? 
I'd have I'd have an open mind in and all those things. Like every member of Dáil Éireann has been duly elected by the people, so it's the people's prerogative in relation to who they send in, and it's our job to work together to come up with the solutions. Um, so I'd have an open mind, and um, that's basically it. But as a former member of the Defence Forces, you've no problem with Sinn Féin being in government. Um, I'd have no issues because if you look at the, the United Nations at the moment, there's a lot of uh, countries that we're working with in the United Nations that we may not necessarily agree with entirely. Um, we're not looking to withdraw from the United Nations. In fact, we're actually looking to deepen our relationship with them by looking for a seat in the Security Council. Okay. Well, it's great to see you all and enjoy the day first and foremost. It's a very proud one for you and for your family. So thank you all very much indeed for coming in to join us here this morning. Dr. Carl Berry, uh, Claire Curran and Francis Duffy, Catherine Martin, thank you as well. And Orla Power, um, Carl's wife, thank you too. The recriminations are likely to continue today following the death of Caroline Flack. The British TV presenter who took her own life was due to stand trial shortly for the alleged assault of her boyfriend. That incident had prompted a deluge of newspaper stories about her life and considerable online commentary, a lot of it pretty nasty. Laura Whitmore, who replaced Caroline Flack as presenter of Love Island, paid tribute to her friend on BBC Five Live yesterday. She told listeners that she wanted to give her the respect that she deserves and didn't always get. Anyone who's ever compared one woman against another on Twitter, knocked someone because of their appearance, invaded someone else's privacy who have made mean, unnecessary comments on an online forum need to look at themselves. Sorry. To the press, the newspapers who create clickbait, who demonise and tear down success. We've had enough. I've seen journalists and Twitter warriors talk of this tragedy and who they themselves have twisted, twisted what the truth is. You don't have to tear down someone to feel good about yourself. So to listeners, be kind. Only you are responsible for how you treat others and what you put out in the world. I've had messages, I've been harassed for just doing my job and this is where the problem is. And I want to use my platform, this platform, to call people out because it's gone too far. Your words affect people. To paparazzi and tabloids looking for a cheap sell, to trolls hiding behind a keyboard. Enough. Laura Whitmore, Mary McGill is a doctoral researcher in cultural and media studies at NUIG and she's in our Galway studio. Mary, I suppose this is first and foremost a tragedy for Caroline Flack's family and we need to remember that. But it does also raise a lot of questions about the behaviour of the press and about the responsibilities of social media platforms. Yes, indeed. I mean, we are living, Rachel, in a celebrity saturated culture and it can feel like we know celebrities, especially given the rise of social media, this kind of idea of intimacy between the star and their followers. But the reality is that we don't, no matter how compelling the narratives we construct around their lives may be. And indeed, reality television, which Flack was, of course, so involved in, so visible on, um, and social media have transformed the nature of celebrity and the media over the past 20 years. They've created new types of stars like Flack, who are expected to be accessible and relatable in ways that were largely unthinkable just a decade ago. It's reduced the distance between, you know, the star and their audience, but it's also made the ability to critique and broadcast and circulate criticism 
so easily in comparison to traditional forms of media. So for celebrities who are active in these spaces, this intensifies the scrutiny they have always been under when it comes to the tabloid press. And it intensifies that scrutiny further because the internet never closes. It needs content 24-7. And of course, entertainment, information, all of this stuff is in high demand. So for example, just before I came on air, I checked one of the websites of one of the British, um, biggest British and indeed international tabloids. And they're carrying seven stories about FLAC this morning. Or sorry, I should say 11 stories about FLAC this morning. So that'll give you an idea of the scale of demand for content on on a story like this. Mm, That's a good point. And it's something also pointed out by The Guardian this morning in that while we may criticise tabloid media, there is a huge appetite for sites like, say, the most popular one, the Daily Mail. And apparently online yesterday, there were more than 20 stories about her on that site alone. And the reason they're there is because the rest of us read them. Right. I mean, I, in, in other work, I'm looking at the male's treatment of Meghan Markle, for example, and it is not uncommon for them to have 10, indeed up to 20 stories, um, depending on what's going on in the royal family at any given time, just about Markle. And indeed, many of the stories covering very perspe- various perspectives on Flack's death were indeed the very papers that were so critical of her in life. And I suppose the cruelest irony and the darkest undercurrent of a lot of this reporting is that people are going to these sites where they are criticising the media absolutely they're still going to these news sources to read about her life and death. Mm, questions also obviously raised about social media. Are, are yes. there two issues here, really? The responsibility of platforms like Twitter, but also mm. the responsibility of the rest of us to rein in the bile. Yes, I mean, the, the, the issues around um, the media's treatment of celebrity and, and um, legalities and all these kind of things, I mean, we go, go as far back as Princess Diana, but the, the media has never been in our, our hands, ordinary people's hands, the, to the degree that it is now, thanks to social media. Because we just we, we don't just consume media anymore, Rachel. We created ourselves, we participated in ourselves every day in spaces like Instagram and Twitter. So we know that it can take time, we'll say, to change the laws when it comes to tabloids. It will certainly take time to establish, you know, more about the role of social media in our lives and how it can be regulated. But what we can be very mindful of immediately right now is our own behaviour online in these spaces with regard to what we put out there, with regard to what we participate in, with regard to what we give our attention to, because that is the gold currency in these spaces, what we like, what we share, what we read. And I think a big question people should be asking themselves is whether what they're contributing in these spaces is constructive or if it's destructive. And if it's the latter, then really we need to be asking serious questions of ourselves about what exactly that is achieving. Mm, This is it, because Twitter can be a very, very cruel place, but it can Mm. also be a friendly, supportive place. Absolutely, absolutely. And indeed, you can have good days and you can have bad days on there. You, you may be the type of person for whom online criticism bounces off you. You may be the type of person, though, who finds it very, very difficult, you know. And again, this is, this is such a new technology in many respects. So we are still figuring out. But while we do, I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the coverage around Flax death about the issue of kindness. And indeed, I find myself thinking more and more of, of a phrase I learned, you know, back in primary school from the Bible, you know, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. We can be very quick to judge in these spaces. They're often very status driven. We want the likes. We want the retweets. But we shouldn't let that blind us to the humanity of other people in these spaces.
Mary McGill, thank you so much for joining us this morning from the Galway studio. And if anyone is affected by this story, you can, of course, contact the Samaritans on their 24 hour helpline. The number is 116123. That's 116123. An 80 metre cargo ship which had been abandoned and adrift in the mid-Atlantic for over a year, has gone aground near Ballycotton in East Cork. There's nobody on board and the cargo vessel Alta is described as derelict. The ship was high and dry on rocks at low tide at five o'clock yesterday. Let's speak to our southern editor, Pascal Sheehy. Pascal, good morning. Good morning, Gavin. Tell us about this boat. Well, she has a colourful history, as you say. In October 2018, uh, the crew of the MV Alta put out a distress signal and uh, the US Coast Guard cutter Confidence had to steam 1,400 nautical miles to reach her southeast of Bermuda and they were involved in a race against time at that stage because it was hurricane season, Hurricane Leslie was closing in and they got the crew uh, of the MV Alta evacuated onto the uh, Coast Guard cutter just in time before that, uh, that, that hurricane hit. And since then... MV Alta has been drifting around the mid-Atlantic. She is reported to have been hijacked twice on the first occasion towed to Guyana uh, and uh, but most of the time she has been um, drifting around the mid-Atlantic. She was spotted on the 3rd of September last year by the Royal Navy's ice patrol ship HMS Protector. Uh, They came close to her, uh, attempted to make radio contact, but there was clearly nobody on board. And lo and behold, Storm Dennis brought brought her onto our shores yesterday. Is there any idea what is on the boat? Uh, no, um, and it may be some time before we find out because she's perched precariously at the bottom of cliffs about three mi- uh, three kilometres west of Ballycotton. Cork County Council engineers from Cork County Council will conduct uh, an examination of her from land today, uh, but that will be uh, basically a pollution assessment, and there are areas of special conservation around her. Uh, and an examination of the ship um, from the air was conducted yesterday afternoon by the Coast Guard helicopter based at Watford uh, Rescue 117, and that established at least. Uh, that she is not leaking any fuel into a number of special areas of conservation in in the area. But how she travelled, the distance she travelled, and in particular without uh, presenting a danger to shipping, a danger to fishing vessels, a danger to the two gas platforms that are off the Cork coast, uh, is an absolute mystery and it is a miracle uh, in itself. A long run that ends in Cork. Pascal Sheehy, our southern editor, thank you. Yeah, we're going to Japan where the uh, the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, has uh, been in port uh, off Yokohama for the past fortnight uh, with many passengers trapped on board because of the coronavirus. Uh, we're going to speak to David McNeil. He's uh, the uh, Irish, writes for the Irish Times and The Economist and is based in Tokyo. Uh, David, good morning. Morning, Gavin. Irish passengers on board, are they going to get off? 
Well, that's what the Department of Foreign Affairs is now saying. They say there's at least one couple on the uh, on the ship and that they are planning to uh, to take them off. As you know, the news today is that the Americans have taken uh, about 380 of their citizens off the cruise ship. Uh, 40 of the 40 of the people, or 40 of the Americans on the ship, are infected, and they've been transferred to local hospitals. And what we hear is that several other countries, including Australia, Canada, possibly Hong Kong and Italy, were planning similar exercises, just getting their citizens off that boat. Uh, the Japanese government attempted to quarantine uh, those people to keep the uh, literally keep the infections at bay, but that experiment seems to have failed. And the the these this news today that governments are planning to take their citizens off seems to confirm that yeah the department of foreign affairs has confirmed there are irish citizens on board the diamond princess asked whether there are any plans to evacuate the irish citizens a spokesperson uh, said the department of foreign affairs is examining its options for, for passengers who, who are taken off the boat are they going to have to go into further quarantine now well yes yeah, so the americans who have been taken off what they face now is an 11 hour flight home and then uh, two weeks quarantine uh, in their own country. So anybody who comes off the boat really uh, uh, faces another trial. They won't. They won't just be able to go home. Obviously, David. Thank you. That's David McNeil in Tokyo. He writes for the Irish Times and the Economist. He was one of the most familiar figures on Dublin's streets in the 1980s. The Dice Man, with his vibrant costumes and distinctive slow walk, entertained Dubliners and visitors alike and went on to be a vocal defender of gay rights at a time of great change in this country. 25 years after his untimely death from AIDS at the age of just 42, a new exhibition has opened at the Little Museum of Dublin on Stephen's Green. Our arts and media correspondent Sinead Crowley has been along to look at it for us. He's elegant and he's exotic and he's becoming quite a tourist attraction and like so many of the things that work best in this country he's also a foreign import. He's known as the Dice Man. That was Mike Murphy in 1983 introducing RTE viewers to the Dice Man. Already a familiar figure on Dublin streets, Tom McGinty had come to Ireland in the 1970s having studied art in Glasgow. He told his story to Gay Byrne on The Late Late Show. I studied in normal theatre in Glasgow and then I came into contact with an Edinburgh mime called Lindsay Kemp. Mm. But then I I modelled in Glasgow Art School for years and I think that's where I got used to the notion of uh, making pictures because it was a very uh, old-fashioned school there and you might be in the one pose for six hours a day. Artist Mick O'Dee got to know Tom in his early days as a model in NCAD. Because he was a clown and a performer, he had an amazing array of costumes, very colourful, and to a lot of us who had just come to Dublin and NCAD for the first time, Tom seemed to epitomise what it was all about, what creativity, what freedom and what possibilities were being presented to us. And he personified that. Tom McGinty began his working life in Dublin as a human statue. Crowds gathered as he stood still, advertising shops like the Diceman Games Shop, where he got his name. But he later developed a slow-moving walk because he was legally prevented from staying in one place for too long. He attracted huge crowds, some of whom wanted to tempt him out of his statue-like persona. Yeah, they'll come up and kind of knock you in the back of the head and they'll turn around and they'll say to you, oh, Jesus, mister, I've been dying to do that for years, thank you very much, you know, and your brains are going around like this, you know. On two occasions, bystanders even attempted to set him on fire and he ended up employing a manager, minder, Aidan Murphy. 
Well, occasionally people used to go and try and touch his eye. And I, and I used to, you know, get quite, be quite annoyed. And I used to say, why, why did you try and do that? You know, and they'd say, well, I, I didn't think he was real. People would throw things. In the early years, he, he, he did uh, walk barefoot and people would, apart from the tax, they would sometimes throw little butts or lighted butts under and he said he would feel the heat just before he was moving so slowly and just before he stepped down he would feel the heat and he'd just move his foot, you know. Tom also worked with other Irish artists and actors including Susie Kennedy. I mean he was a very accomplished artist, he wasn't just someone who hung out on the street, you know, he had the the creativity, the intelligence, the and the skill. Aidan Murphy, Susie Kennedy and Mick O'Dea have all contributed to an exhibition on the Dice Man at the Little Museum of Dublin, just a short, slow walk from his beloved Grafton Street. As well as his larger-than-life persona, it also remembers Tom's political work, which included campaigning for gay rights in an Ireland that could be far from inclusive. that time, there was so much happening. The Hirschfield Centre was set up... Uh, David Norris was advocating uh, both here in Ireland and in Europe. He, uh, he became a powerful figurehead for uh, gay rights. In another groundbreaking move, Tom McGinty appeared on The Late Late again to speak openly and honestly about living with AIDS, which was then a terminal condition. The amount of people, the amount of people today who have come up and said to me, uh, you know, uh, sorry to hear your illness, you know, not, I hope you get better, and I'll say, well, I won't, it's AIDS, you know. I think he just wanted to do it for, for himself and for for other people um, that might be suffering from the disease. And uh, if I remember rightly, he spent a lot of the interview talking about and t- talking directly to people through the camera, uh, people at home, you know, that, uh, that might have be HIV positive and, you know, advising them what they might do and, you know, and supporting them. The Dice Man's famous costumes press clippings and a picture of that famous wink all form part of this exhibition which runs until May the 25th. I don't know what the fascination is for it, you know, but the stillness seems to kind of fixate and kind of hypnotise people a bit, you know, like, you know, they're standing there sitting, wondering why, how you're being so still, but they're actually being just as still, you know. The Dice Man, Tom McGinty, ending that report by Sinead Crowley and that exhibition at the Little Museum of Dublin on Dublin St Stephen's Green opens to the public from today. Who will be allowed to go to Britain and Northern Ireland to work from next year when free movement into the UK comes to an end? It's not expected that Irish people will be affected but workers from EU and non-EU countries will face a points-based system to qualify. Low-skilled workers won't get visas. In a policy statement, Britain's Home Office says a new immigration bill would introduce a firm and fair system to attract high-skilled workers and move away from cheap labour from Europe. The UK's Home Secretary, Priti Patel, told the BBC this morning that the new system would mean the brightest and the best will be able to come to the United Kingdom. Well, it is a radical shake-up completely. This is the first time in nearly 40 years where the British government will be in control and will determine its own immigration policy and will also be able to determine the type of system that it will be in control of. Um, We are bringing an end to free movement of labour, which, of course, is linked to our membership of the European Union. And as you've already said, we are no longer going to have a route for low-skilled workers to come to the UK. This will now be a single 
global system that does not discriminate as to whether or not you've come from the EU or from outside of the EU. This will be a single global system based upon the talents and the skills linked to the points-based system that you've already highlighted that you can bring to the United Kingdom. But importantly, this is a new system that will be in the control of the British government. That's the UK's Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Let's speak to our London correspondent, Sean Wheeler. Morning, Sean. Good morning. Before we get to this system, will it or how does it affect Irish people? Uh, It doesn't affect Irish people for three reasons. Firstly, the old Government of Ireland Act from 1949 uh, decrees that Irish people will not be regarded as foreigners uh, by the British system. Uh, Then you have the common travel area, which has been uh, more fleshed out in recent years. That was just tended to be just custom and practice, but we do have a a common travel area uh, and uh, that also implies common welfare uh, region, um, healthcare, mutual uh, supports, some voting rights for people. Uh, I mean, I was able to vote in the British elections uh, in uh, December. because I'm an Irish citizen, we're allowed to do that sort of thing. So uh, we will be able to continue to come and work in the UK and British citizens will be able to continue to work in Ireland. It'll be the only bit of the EU that they will have free movement rights to. Uh, And then there's also the practicality of the Northern Ireland border. Uh, If you can't, uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about customs uh, checks uh, on the Irish border being impossible. What about passport control? What about the idea of people queuing up in the morning coming from Northern Ireland to get to work in Combilift in Monaghan having to show their passports to uh, British Border Force to get across the border into Ireland uh, or back again in the evening? It's you know wildly impractical. So for all of those reasons, uh, no, the Irish are in this anomalous position being EU citizens but having uh, free movement rights uh, in the UK okay. after the end of this year. So Irish people not affected. What about everybody else? They are affected and uh, The aim of this is, uh, according to the British government, to reduce by about 70% the amount of uh, people coming from uh, other European countries uh, into the UK who are currently in the UK. If you look at the the profile of workers that are currently here, uh, they think in the future that would fall by about 70%. Uh, And they're being pretty explicit about this. The idea is to restrict numbers uh, of people coming into the country, uh, numbers in general. And the way to do that, they say, is to treat everybody in the world, apart from Irish people, uh, as equally and make them all go through uh, an application process, uh, a points-based application process. They call it an Australian-style one, but of course in Australia... The idea of the system there is to recruit people, not to keep them out, uh, but just to be selective about who you recruit. The point of this system is to reduce the numbers, and they have built in a provision that they can cap uh, numbers coming in in any year should they feel the need to do that. Uh, They probably won't, but they have it built in because of the uh, fairly toxic politics of of emigration in this country. The draft plan says you'd need 70 points to be able to get a visa to work in the UK. How do you get 70 points? Right, well, the first uh, qualification is being able to speak English. You get 10 points for that. We don't know what the standard is or how it will be tested or where it will be tested, but 10 points for that. Uh, 20 points for having an approved job sponsor. So, uh, like when you go for the J-1 visas in America, you're supposed to have some uh, sponsor over there who says, yeah, I'll give this guy a job. Uh, That gets you 20 points. And then 20 points for being paid more than £25,600 
per annum, uh, unless you're in a, an area where there's shortages like nursing, in which case it can drop to 20,000. And then there's various other uh, little bits that'll make it up. But that's the, the key 50 points. You must have those three things. And then there's various other uh, elements that uh, can add on to that. If you have a PhD, for example, you can get a uh, 20-point uh, qualification there if it's in science areas, but not if it's things like social sciences. They don't want any of that anymore coming in. Uh, and also your baseline qualifications have to be at an A-level um, qualification, which is a bit higher than Irish Leaving Cert. Um, so it's getting on for certificates from a, a technological institute. And so it's fairly tight and um, it, it will have a big impact. And what about existing workers in the UK, existing workers who come <clears throat> from EU and non-EU countries? They're supposed to be all right under the system that's been brought in of settled status. Uh, they're supposed to apply for settled status to basically let the British system know that they're here and uh, they get issued with uh, an electronic um, certificate saying, uh, yeah, it's okay, uh, you can stay and you keep all your existing uh, rights and, and obligations under the UK system. It is a bit problematic for those people who are here who would prefer to have a physical bit of paper or plastic card so they can show it to people like landlords or prospective employers or other people. Um, they say this electronic stuff is just too uh, nebulous and, and they're used to having uh, a physical card from their own country uh, as well. But they get to stay. It's anybody who's new who will be coming in after the 1st of January. Sean, thank you. That's our London correspondent, Sean Wheel. Let's stay with the story and speak to Colin Neal. He's Chief Executive of Hospitality Ulster. Uh, Colin Neal, good morning. Good morning. Um, for workers, or rather, when you're looking for workers in tourism and hospitality in the north from 2021, how are you going to be affected under these new laws? This is a body blow. This this will, you know, it will cripple growth of our sector, cripple growth of tourism. And um, it, it's just, you know, it's a nightmare for our members. We, we're ready. I mean, the, the, the outworkings of Brexit has already caused a labour shortage in our industry. And you have to set that in the context. I mean, Northern Ireland, we have the lowest unemployment rate for a generation. Um, you know, we have a low birth rate. We do not have the physical bodies here. Um, we're, you know, we're seeing a drain of EU nationals, you know, as the, you know, the normal EU national comes with us, stays four or five years, goes back home. So that we're, that's declining and creating job vacancies. I mean, today I have members who are not opening a new restaurant because they couldn't staff it. You know, this just exaggerates that. If we look at our tourism, our tourism is a growth sector. We're only half of what uh, yourselves are. We're looking to double that to a £2 billion industry and create 25,000 new jobs. Those will be job vacancies. We just will not have the people to fill them. And then you look at the agri-food industry, particularly around uh, sort of Portadown, Dungannon area, where a large number of people have come into the north uh, in recent years to work. And that flow would now stop. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not just our sector. You replicate, you know, the, the need for people. And I don't even like this migrant worker unskilled, you know, just because it's not a formal qualification. There are lots of really good skilled people. Uh, so we're all going to be fishing in a smaller pool. And it's not it's not just about cheap labour, this, you know, it, it's about there's a going rate for a job. We pay it, but the bodies aren't there to do it. And while some other sectors can automate, you know, when it gets to that point, hospitality can't we we can't you know nobody wants to walk into one of our irish bars and it's just a row of vending machines or a, 
a burger drops your plate from somewhere. Um, you know, we need people. That's the the bottom line in this. And and if we don't get them, our industry will not only not grow, but it'll actually re- retract as we lose more of the European people as they go home. Colin Neil, given that there won't be any uh, border checks for passports on the island of Ireland, for EU or non-EU citizens who are currently living south of the border, if they wanted to move north and work from next year, could they? No, they, will, they actually have a, a term for that. It's called a frontier worker, where it would be... A UU national, say, lives in Larry County, comes into Derry yes. day to work. Um, I actually sit on the Home Office's National Migration Advisory Group, and I still can't get an answer on that. They just keep sending me, oh, but they could get right of residency. And I'm going, they don't want to live here. They're yeah, quite happy living in Derry County. Yes. So, um, no so clarity the, so far? No, and I think you know, this system doesn't mention them at all. I mean, and if you, if you go into Derry on a day, I mean, 40% of the number plates are from Letter County. Colin Neal, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. That's Colin Neal, he's Chief Executive of Hospitality Ulster. It's eight minutes to nine. We're going to finish with an unusual story. A 10-year-old Donegal boy, Dara Curley, has been making headlines because he wrote a letter to Liverpool manager Jürgen Klopp asking him to please stop winning matches. And perhaps surprisingly, Jürgen Klopp wrote back to him. So Dara spoke to Mary Wilson in drive time last night and we thought that it might cheer up those of you who missed it. So you wrote a letter to Jürgen Klopp. So you're a Liverpool fan, are you? No. You're not? No, I'm Man United. So why were you writing to Jurgen Klopp in Liverpool? Um, well, we were do- practicing how to write letters in school and then I decided everyone else was doing fan letters and I decided to write a complaint to Jurgen Klopp. Oh, what were you complaining about? Your Liverpool are going great, but you're a Man United supporter. Because they were winning too many games and I wanted them to lose more because so they-, they wanted the other... T- because they wanted the other team to lose the game, win the games. So, did you write to Jurgen Klopp and ask him to throw a few games Manchester United's way? Yeah. Did he write back? Uh, yeah. Did he? Yeah. Wonderful. What did he say to you? Dear Dara, firstly, I would like to thank you for writing to me. I know you did not send me good luck or anything like that, but it is always good to hear from a young football fan no matter what, so I appreciate you getting in touch. Unfortunately, on this occasion, I cannot grant you a request. Not through choice, anyway. As much as you want Liverpool to lose, it is my job to do everything that I can to help Liverpool to win, as there are millions of people around the world who want that to happen. So I really do not want to let them down. Luckily for you, we have lost games in the past and we will lose games in the future, because that is is football. The problem is, when you're 10 years old, you think that things will always be as they are now. But if there's one thing I can tell you, 52 years old, is that this is most definitely isn't the case. Having read your letter, though, I can, I can safely say that one thing will not change is your passion for football and for your club. Manchester United are lucky to have you. I hope that if we are lucky enough to win more games and maybe even lift some more trophies, you will not be too disappointed. Although our clubs are great rivals, we also share a great respect for one another. This, to me, is what football is all about. Take care and good luck, Jurgen Klopp.
Well, you know what? Manchester United are very lucky to have you. And I know you're not a Liverpool fan, but you have to hand it to Jürgen Klopp. He writes a great letter. He certainly does, yeah. I wonder, I wonder, will Dara start having sneaky love for Liverpool now? Anyway, it would cheer you up on a Friday. That's great. Maybe he put the hex on them this week, yeah. did he? Well, you were right. Jürgen obliged him midweek. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.